You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I just want to tell you a little bit about a sponsor that is making today's show possible. And this particular sponsor is also making it possible for you to get a better night's sleep. It's Casper. Casper is a different kind of mattress company. Number one, they have no stores. They send the mattresses to your house. It comes in a box. It's impossible to imagine that a mattress has fit in that box, but it has and the mattress is fantastic. They've got two kinds of technology, latex foam and memory foam. You're going to get just the right sink and just the right bounce. You're going to have a better night's sleep, and you're going to have brighter days. Another thing that's great, there's no risk. You can try the mattress for 100 days. You can sleep on it for 99 nights. And if you don't like it, you will like it. But if you don't like it, you can send it back totally free. It's absolutely painless. Another great thing, a feature of these mattresses that I would like to tell you about is the price they're only 500 bucks for a twin and 950 for a king. If you bought a mattress anytime in the last like what, 15 years, you know that those prices are incredible and they get even better if you go to casper.com/longform and use the promo code longform, you'll get 50 bucks off. So go to casper.com/longform, use that promo code longform, get 50 bucks off, start getting a better night's sleep. Thanks so much to Casper for sponsoring the show, and here we go. Hey, it's Aaron, Long Form Podcast, here with Max Linsky. Hey. Evan Ratliff is living out his dreams out in the world. Yeah, he's far, far away doing reportage. Reportage, reportage, reportage. I was trying to do things, I was like, reportage. This week on the show, Cliff Nesteroff. Max knows this is someone I wanted to have on the show from the jump. I have a very clear memory of sitting in your house, like, week four of longform.org and you coming upon Cliff, Cliff Nesteroff's work on the WFMU blog and losing your goddamn mind. It's amazing. He writes about the classic era of comedy. Actually, he writes about the entire era of comedy from vaudeville to shitty 1980s laugh factory bullshit. He writes about it all. He uncovers these stories that you don't know and no one knows if he doesn't find them. Um, he's put them all together into a book. The book's called The Comedians. I highly recommend it. Uh, if you have any interest in comedy at all, you're really going to enjoy this interview. No one knows more about this stuff than him. I'm so glad you got it, man. Um, if you enjoy these interviews, by the way, yeah. a thing you could do to yeah. help us out yeah. would be to go to longform.org slash donate. Yeah. So like, just like uh, you can support the show by buying a Casper mattress, whew, that's a good night's sleep. You can support us directly by going to longform.org slash donate. 
nothing's going to change. The show's not going to go away if we don't get $20 from you. No, just if you feel like giving us some money to keep doing the show, great. If not, keep listening to the show. Thank you. I'll tell you what, there's a, a Hall of Fame supporter. Yeah. A legendary supporter. Yeah. The the GOAT supporter. Yeah. It's MailChimp. Yeah. MailChimp. I thought you were going to talk about my mom's donation to Long Farm. <laughs> <laughs> it was massive. Thank you, Dibsy. Thank you. Uh, no, I was going to talk about MailChimp. Let's talk about MailChimp. MailChimp is the best way in the universe yeah. to send an email newsletter. Over 8 million businesses rely on it. Longform does. Atavis does. Every business worth their salt uses MailChimp. If you are not using MailChimp, get it together. Uh, here I am with Cliff Nesteroff, throwing it to myself. I'm very familiar with um, the comedy stuff you've written, but do you have a separate writing path I'm unaware of? Yeah, because I never sought out to be a historian yeah. or a uh, nonfiction writer. I was like a beat poet guy. You know, yeah. when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with City Lights and New Directions, and now my current publisher, Grove Press. Uh, when I was a boy, oh, I was this read, is Grove Press. This is this Grove book. Press. Hey, shouts to Grove Press. I didn't notice. Yeah, it's Grove Press. So I'm thrilled. It's the perfect uh, publishing house for me, just based on my interest in my history. Um, I would read anything they published when I was a teenager. Yeah. So, like when I was a boy, uh, when I was 18, I think right after I turned 18, I hitchhiked from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean and back. Where Where are you? Where in, did you grow up? In Canada. In Canada. In Canada. In uh, Vancouver. Or, uh... I, I grew up in the woods in the interior of British Columbia uh, near a Russian uh, pacifist settlement. Mm. Uh, my last name is Nesterov, which is Russian. And where I grew up, everybody has a similar last name. So I was Cliff Nesterov. I grew up on Osachov Road. There was a restaurant uh, run by Rose Lejabokov called Rose's <laughs> Restaurant. At my school, the principal was Mr. Lukov. My teacher was Mr. Chernoff. The kids across the aisle from me in class were Adam Chernenkov, Dennis Potovinikov, Justin Stushinov. And as a um, Grove Press obsessed, uh, fledgling uh, beatnik, were you out of place in, in where you grew up? Well, it was funny. That was my culture. But in the same uh, valley, in the middle of nowhere, there were hundreds of people who had dodged the draft in the 60s, mm. old hippies who now had raised children my age who were hippies. So they were not necessarily beatniks. They were hippies, but... It was as if the 60s had never left. So all these kids came to school with their long hair and tie-dyed shirts, and their parents had the best pot and the best acid, and they grew pot. So it was a different culture from mine, but it was all part of the same school. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, from, um, I'm from Berkeley, California, and uh, there was a similar kind of circuit, not within Berkeley, but of families that ended up in Humboldt and often were sort of in and out of communes, like you yes. live in the city for a few years, kids go to school, then you go back to a commune. There were, there were still Ukiah. communes around where I uh, grew up, and I would go visit friends on those communes, and that's when I started smoking pot and doing acid, and that changed my life for yeah. the better. Um, Me too. So that was all around that milieu. So it was a weird combo. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, the Russian community, which was uh, founded on pacifism, these were Russian immigrants from the 1890s who were funded on an exodus uh, by Leo Tolstoy, who was sympathetic to these people who uh, rejected uh, conscription in Russia by the second uh, Alexander, the evil czar, I guess. I think that was his name. Um, so Tolstoy funded uh, my ancestors to come over here, and they settled in this little region of Canada. And it was like a kibitz. It was like uh, uh, farming and, and knitting, and like everything was made by hand. 
And both of my grandparents, both of my grandpas um, were of that same Russian community. They both spent World War II in prison in Canada, not because they were Nazis, but because they were conscientious objectors and would not uh, go to war. They didn't believe in guns. They didn't believe in killing anybody for any reason. Um, the community was vegetarians in like the, the teens and the 20s. So it was interesting. But when it got to my age in the 1980s, they were like the enemies of these hippies and the hippies were the enemies of these Russian kids because the Russian community had by then become like working class so in that area it was like logging was the big thing yeah and the hippie parents were like chaining themselves to the trees so that they wouldn't be cut down so there was this weird tension where I grew up in high school it was not nerds versus jocks yeah it was Russian pacifist working class versus hippie draft dodger kids yeah I think that's actually not an uncommon dynamic though like the kind of like the uh, yeah like um, red rednecks versus commune kids yeah it's like I don't there seems to be it seems to be a uh, aesthetically rich vein of uh, northern American culture uh, Pacific Northwest yeah, Pacific no- all the way really the whole Pacific coast right. you see that that kind I mean you know people have a perception of or you know Oregon being uh, Portlandia ish but the majority of Oregon is um, pretty pretty trucks and guns ish yeah yeah I mean we didn't have the gun aspect because it was uh, Canada but the truck thing certainly yeah um, yeah, so it was just an interesting uh, diaspora of, uh, of elements. Yeah. So I don't know that I was out of place as the beat guy. I was out of place, like, within the Russians uh, of that community, but I hung out with those hippie kids, but I got along with, with, with everybody because I was basically invisible. Right. It was not... Uh, significant enough for anybody to care one way or the other. But when I started getting acid from these people's parents, well, that changed uh, everything. And that it also gave me a sense of uh, bravery in, in a lot of ways. And I don't think I would have picked up my backpack and stuck out my thumb and gone all the way across the country on a whim uh, uh, if I had not uh, tapped into those powers, I guess, through psychedelics. What, did, did those paths lead you to comedy? Well, I collected records when I was a teenager, and that's sort of what led to it. I was already a funny uh, child mm. for whatever reason. I don't know why. And where I grew up, we we were very remote. We couldn't get uh, television. And in Canada, you can't get the three networks from America without cable, unless you're like really close to the border or something. But So we only had CBC, and it uh, didn't give you a lot of exposure to stuff. There was no city or town where I grew up. It was just the woods in the middle of nowhere. There's a house here, a house there. So we'd rent movies from the gas station. That's where you got your wow. uh, crash course in popular culture. So I'd rent anything that had John Candy, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, any of those SNL, National Lampoon, SCTV people, I would watch those movies. And I watched all the ones that came through the gas station until I think the age of 11, I saw the first movie that wasn't one of those comedies in my life. I rented a movie. I thought it would be hilarious because it starred Robin Williams and it was called The Dead Poet Society. Oh, yeah. And then after I saw that, I wanted to kill myself. But I also thought, wow, maybe a movie that's not a comedy could also be good. But so that was my first uh, time being hip to comedy was through those VHS rentals of all those greats from SNL and SCTV. And when did you start thinking about performing? Well, I always secretly wanted to do it, but since I was in the middle of nowhere, there's no uh, avenue for right. it. Right. Had you ever even like seen live comedy at this point? No. no. I never saw live comedy until I moved to Toronto when I was uh, 18 or 19. And shortly thereafter, I started it. Uh, this guy, Jason Rouse, who is a Toronto uh, comedian, did a very dirty act. Like he would deep throat the microphone. It was all about sex. And anyways, this guy, Jason, said, well, you're funny. You should do stand-up. Because he he was a stand-up. 
And I said, no, I don't want to do that because I kind of had like this idea that it was still the 80s comedy boom with, right. the, with the shoulder pads and the skinny tie and just some misogynist guy complaining about his wife. And even though I'd liked Just for Laughs stuff, by that point I had turned into more of a hippie beatnik and now I was like had an aversion to commercial culture. Yeah, you know? I remember kind of having them. One of the other um, low quality VHS tapes that was uh, circulating when I was a senior in high school was uh, Mr. Show, like a compilation right. of Mr. Show. And I kind of remember watching Mr. Show and going like, oh, God, this like stand up stuff seems so like lame now. You know, like Compared the, the guy in the comedy club, it's, that's going to be over. It's now it's going to be like wacky yeah. and it's going to be MTV sketches and right, it's going to be edgy right. and no one's ever going to want to go back and get a two drink minimum right, in the club. Right. It, it's, it seemed like an 80s thing yeah. in a way that it feels when you're 10 years removed well, instead e of now it all seems kind even of cheesy. To, even to this day when you meet people that aren't into comedy or aren't into stand-up, it's usually because they think it is that. Yeah. That it's that 80s uh, style. And so I really believed it was like that. I'd never been in a comedy club before and Jason mm -hmm. Rouse said, well, why don't you come down and watch the show? I'm doing a show tonight, and you can just see what it's like. And I was like, I don't even know if I want to do that because yeah. I'm afraid it's going to be all guys complaining about their wives wearing a Toronto Blue Jays ball cap, and these are not guys I can relate to. But I went anyways. <laughs> you got a Toronto Blue Jays ball cap here. No offense. I did not realize. That's so strange. Uh, so I went uh, at his behest. And sure enough, everybody on the show was like some fat middle-aged guy complaining yeah. about his wife. It was exactly what I feared. I mean, I that is what comedy is. Yeah. It can be a very good version of that or a very bad yeah. version and of it that. it was a bad version of that. But then this guy, Jason Rouse, went up like fifth and he destroyed. He took control and he destroyed this audience and then left the stage. And I was like, what the fuck was that? How did he do that? Yeah. That is unbelievable. It was like a superpower. I was really impressed. And so I guess at his prodding a few weeks later, I did my first gig in a small town in Ontario where he, he was hosting and he could get me a spot. And my first joke, got a, I wrote like four jokes. My first joke got a laugh. My second joke got half a laugh. My third joke got silence. My fourth joke got silence. And I left the stage after one minute. <laughs> and the MC was still in the bathroom. And there was a blank stage there and he had to run to, to, to save face. But uh, that first laugh was enough. So I started doing it. And uh, but I had not really been on stage before. I had been on radio before because in the closest town to where I grew up, it was the hippie town. When I was 16, they put out this call. They wanted to put together a co-op radio station there. And as it turns out, myself and five people that were much older uh, started an experimental radio station there. Uh, six months later, we filed with the CRTC, which is like the Canadian version of the FCC for an experimental license. They would grant you the license to broadcast for one month to see if there was community support for what you were doing. Uh, we did that. And then another six months later, we got another temporary license to broadcast for one month. And then shortly thereafter, I moved to Toronto. And just as I did, when I left, that radio station did not have call letters. But just as I left, they got the approval. They got call letters. That radio station still exists today. Hey. And it's got some award-winning uh, shows that are now like podcasts. There's a food politics a show that comes out of there that's very popular. Yeah, and that radio station still exists. So I had done radio when mm. I was like 16, 17. Um, and I, so I certainly wanted to be a performer or on mic or something, but there, your chances are very limited in the woods yeah. unless you're performing for uh, woodland creatures. And are you the kind of person that when you started thinking about performing comedy, you immediately took it to this research archival level? No. Okay. No, I just did jokes, but I collected records 
records. And I would go to the Salvation Army and buy records by people I'd never heard of simply because they were comedy records. In fact, three of the first records I ever bought were comedy records. One was Monty Python Live at Drury Lane, Stan Freeberg with the original cast, and Wayne and Schuster in live in person, I think it was called, or live comedy performance, something like that. But Wayne and Schuster, a Canadian comedy team from the 50s and 60s, Monty Python, of course, from the UK, and Stan Freeberg, an American satirist from the 50s. So three different genres of comedy were the first records I bought. And then I would go to thrift stores and I'd find these comedy records by people I'd never heard of, like Rusty Warren and Von Meter and Woody Woodbury. And I'd be like, well, who the hell are these people? And then I noticed that their records were in every store, every junk store, every antique store, every thrift store. And I was like, this is weird because I've never heard of them. They're not on TV. They're not in movies. But yet their records are in every store. They're comedy records. So I figured, well, there must be some backstory here because obviously they were famous at one point, so what's the story? And I would accumulate more and more of these records, and they started to tell a story of their own. So many of them were recorded live from the nightclub floor in Miami Beach. And I was like, what the hell's going on in Miami Beach? Why are all these comedy records? I didn't have any context for the history. But slowly but surely, I learned that before Las Vegas existed, Miami Beach was America's playground. It's where all the comedians performed. It's where you went to get uh, prostitutes and drugs and uh, uh, lax gambling laws, you know. And I learned the story of Von Meter, that here was a guy who had a comedy record that satirized uh, President Kennedy called The First Family, that it was not just the best-selling comedy record of all time when it came out. It was the best-selling record of all time, the, the six million sales like in less than a year. And so I thought that was interesting. And then I learned that when JFK was assassinated, Von Meter's career was over because his only shtick was impersonating President Kennedy. So he went from being the number one bestseller to having all his records recalled by the record label and being canceled from every TV show he was booked on. So he went from being the most popular comedian to uh, uh, anathema, you know, to the, yeah. to the industry. Which is kind of a theme in your book, actually. It, I is, feel kind like of a, it is a bit of a theme. It, there's not a lot of second acts in, in, in comedy, it does not appear. Yeah. There's a well, few. There there's are, a few there, guys. There come. are if you know how to reinvent yourself. And right. Von Meter tried to reinvent himself, but... Before he hit with this record, this was the thing about Von Meter. He sounded like JFK and he looked a bit like JFK. So it was a natural thing. But when he got hired to do that record by other people, a couple of disc jockeys had the idea. He only had a year of experience under his belt and half of it was like just music and half of it was impressions. So he becomes the biggest star. He gets placed in Carnegie Hall, but he's got no stage experience and he's yeah. playing Carnegie Hall. So there's a, a variety review I found and the headline is Meter Bombs. <laughs> At Carnegie Hall. And the only positive thing they have to say is that his opening act, Stanley Myron Handelman, was uh, was funny with good jokes. So JFK gets assassinated. Von Meter's career is essentially over. He's trying to reinvent, him, reinvent himself, but he, he became psychotic. It affected him mentally. Now nobody wants anything to do with him. He became destitute. He was eating out of garbage cans. He started doing a bunch of peyote. He wandered the desert. He became a born-again Christian and eventually settled in. Uh, Maine, where he became a country and western piano player. Okay, so I got to pause you there. Yeah, that is an incredible story. Also, I have no idea how the fuck you figured all that stuff out. So, as you started to become interesting in a person like this, like what what was what is was and what is your research style for tracing a person like that who you can sort of see like first time they popped on the stage, right? Okay, we're one year in. He's at Carnegie right. Hall. We've got this anchor and variety. Right. He bombed. Right. How do you tell the rest of his story? Well, 
I don't have access to things that other people don't, but my ability to collate information, for some reason, I have a knack for it. I could find things. I kind of knew where to look. A lot of stuff I find by accident. So when I was researching this book, I relied heavily on the Variety Archives, which you can get online if you pay a fee. It's expensive, but you can access it. But a lot of what I learned, I learned by accident because I'd type in Von Meter and it would have a little story about him bombing at Carnegie Hall. And then in the bottom right-hand corner, it would say uh, comedian Jackie Cannon uh, stabbed in the neck. And you'd be like, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) There's another story here. And then if you flip through the issue, you'd find other kind of weird things like uh, an announcement. Buddy Hackett is coming out with a new comedy LP called Seven Lively Highs, a look at the funny side of marijuana, heroin, and other sorted drugs. And you're like, wait, what? What? So one thing kind of like leads the detail to another. That, that a common act in the uh, early uh, vaudeville days was just a guy who's on drugs. That was like a, a character oh, that, in, that in was my like, book, I mentioned yeah, in that. the book, yeah, yeah like that. Uh, that a, a popular kind of like fallback was just like opium guy. Yeah, the dope peddler. Act. Dope peddler. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That was a template. Yeah, there's a thing I quote in the book about how so many people have ripped off the dope peddler act, but the original is still the best. This is like 1914. Say, I was thinking about this Jim Brewer bit uh, that I re- that was on that um, bootleg tape where he talks about how his eyes are always bloodshot. And basically just living his life like he's really high to try to get police right. officers right. To, to, to fall for it. Uh, so that's a that's a classic one. But so as you started to get deeper, um, deeper into like researching this stuff, like I, my probably the closest comparable in my own Internet browsings are like kind of rare, obscure records. Right. And there's a whole community of people out there who are like ripping private press LPs and putting them online. So if you get interested in it, you can't necessarily find like every piece of information, but there's like enough weirdos around the the world that they cast a large net. Is that true in comedy? Because I don't know anyone other than you who follows this stuff. I mean, I feel like you're a one-man industry in in bringing this stuff to life. Thank you. That's a nice uh, compliment. There's a few other people. They don't write about it, but they're obsessed with it. Ah. So there definitely are comedy collectors. There's a guy named Ronald L. Smith. If you ever looked at those great books that came out of San Francisco a couple decades ago by research capital re backslash search they put out two books called incredibly strange music volumes one and two and uh one of them has a big long interview with della biafra about his record collection another big long interview with one of the phantom surfers and and his record collection guys who were obsessed with with records and there was a profile of this guy ronald l smith who was like a uh I don't know if he was a Baptist preacher or just a priest, but he was like a a man of the cloth with the largest comedy LP collection in the world. Just his whole house is comedy LPs. So there's guys like that, but they're not necessarily writing about it. They know, you know, inherently about these, these kind of things. So I meet collectors and I guess three, just over three years ago, I did Mark Maron's podcast for the first time and that has a wide reach. And after I did that show, uh, I heard from lots of collectors, and they started sending me things, oh. like uh, audio of Albert Brooks's father's final performance at a Friars Club roast of Lucille Ball, which I write about in my book. Which uh, he died after, right? He dropped dead. Sorry, spoiler alert. After his set in front of a 1,000 people. Well, somebody sent me the audio, not just of him uh, dying, but the whole roast beginning to end, quite fascinating. So there's people out there that collect things. Another guy from Miami sent me 
uh, bootleg of every Albert Brooks radio appearance on Larry King's syndicated mutual radio show in the 70s and 80s, like just uh, 20 or 30 appearances, every time doing something uniquely different, hilarious. So there's people out there, even pre-internet people who are into that stuff. Um, but I don't know that there's a community uh, per se. I think I probably have encountered most of those collectors, which is odd because I myself am no longer a collector. I had thousands of records after I started collecting as a teenager. At one point in Canada on the CBC, I was the record guy. I had 10,000 LPs, and I appeared regularly on the show Go, where I would showcase some of the weirdest oddities. Only like novelty records, pretty novelty much? Novelty or like Christian anti-drug records, okay, yeah. just weird things like that. But you're a, not into like like psychedelic rock. These are I all, was, oh, okay. but I didn't play it on the air. Not on the air. So for this segment, it was like yeah. a comic entertainment, so we'd okay. make jokes about what we just heard on the air and stuff like that. But at one point, I had 10,000 LPs and 1,045s and 178s and like it becomes unmanageable. It's like an anchor. Yeah. You become the crazy person who lives amongst soiled newspapers. These were all in your apartment? Yeah, yeah. What, did you, I mean, I'm trying I'm trying to think how big, 10,000 records, that's like every, a, more than a room. Ev- oh, yeah. yeah. Every wall in every room and yeah. then records all over the floor in piles. And then I think I had some more in storage. Um, but then you can never move ever. And I did not want to remain in Vancouver for the rest of my life. I wanted to move to uh, Hollywood to advance my career. So eventually I had to sell it off and it became so difficult even to sell it off. I started giving shit away. I gave all my comedy records to one guy. That was the deal. You keep them intact because together a thousand comedy LPs is a museum. Individually, they're just worthless shit. Right. The Salvation Army. Yeah. So uh, this one guy who was a comic in Vancouver said he'd take them and he did. For free, I let him take them. It was like a burden to to unload, you know. Um, and they they had not much uh, street value comedy records. Still don't. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. If you put up websites like I do, people are always asking you to make a website for them, and then eventually you say, "I don't have time to make any more websites," and then you. Send them to Squarespace. Why do you send them to Squarespace? Because Squarespace is the simple way to get a band site, a writing portfolio, an e-commerce store. All of that stuff can be done with their intuitive and easy-to-use tools. You'll get a professionally designed website regardless of your skill level, and you don't need to know any code. So what I want you to do is go to squarespace.com, use the offer code LONGFORM. You get a free domain if you sign up for a year, and you'll get 10% off with that code. Again, that code is LONGFORM, and it helps support the show. Thank you, Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Today's second sponsor is Creative Live. Creative Live can help you unlock your creative potential. It's a great place to rekindle your artistic spark or dig into new skills like photography, design, crafting, music production, and business savvy. You can watch classes in their massive online catalog, or you can even attend some of them live and learn from the very best. They've got experts like Tim Ferriss. Check out his long-form podcast. Alex Bloomberg, again, check out his long-form podcast. They'll show you how to bring your A-game to whatever revs your engine creatively. So I want you to go to Creative Live. That's creativelive, L-I-V-E, dot com slash long-form for 20% off any of Creative Live's amazing catalog of classes. Thrill yourself and join a vibrant community of creators today. Thanks, Creative Live. Here we are back with the show.
when did you think about writing writing this stuff down and um, making uh, something of a career out well, of writing about it? There were uh, two instances. The first was had nothing to do with comedy per se, but in the days of MySpace.com, around 2005 or 2006, for just on a whim, I decided to write like a blog. I don't know why I thought of this, but in the 70s, uh, there was 12 Archie comics that were licensed to a Christian book label, and they released 12 Christian Archie comics using one of the Archie artists who was a very uh, devout Christian. And it was like a regular Archie comic, but with all this sort of Christian undercurrent. So Jughead is in Pop Tate's chocolate shop, and he's praying, saying grace before he eats his hamburgers. And I had read one of these comics when I was four years old in my grandma's basement with no cover. And it starts off with a bomb threat at Riverdale High, which already seems like unconventional for regular Archie. But it was drawn in the same style. It was one of the original artists, so this guy Al Hartley. So I thought that was really unusual. And the premise of the story is that a hippie uh, is the new kid at school and he he drives a motorcycle down the hall and he's like a problem kid and they're in art class and everybody's painting flowers in a vase, yet this hippie kid is is painting ban the bomb in protest signs. And his name was Legion, I remember, in the comic. And they said, Legion, why are you such a uh, 'er ne'er-do-well? And then the next uh, page is just a big drawing of his head and circling around it is like syringes and like... uh, I don't know, skull and crossbones. And he goes, well, when I was a kid, my parents got divorced. I'm giving him that voice. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) My parents got divorced. And it talks about how divorce led to this guy becoming a problem child. Anyways, it was such a weird comic to read as the age of four because it looked like an Archie comic. Yeah. But the tone was completely different. And so I wrote a history of Christian Archie comics, which I did with a Google uh, research. And it was kind of a cheeky history. It wasn't like uh, objective. You know, I said it, it It was creepy. I read it. I felt like I had been molested. You know, it had those ki- that kind of commentary. And I gave a history of the guy's father who drew it, Al Hartley. His father was uh, Hartley, the senator who famously drafted the Taft-Hartley bill in the late 40s, which is a notorious piece of anti-labor union legislation. Anyway, so I got into all that. Two weeks later, I get an email from this guy, Jim Windolph. He says, uh, uh, I read your piece. I thought it was very funny, and I'm, I'm doing a thing, a feature for Vanity Fair about Archie comics. Would you be available to, to talk to me? I thought it was a prank from a friend because I, I just posted it on MySpace. Nobody saw it, six people. And I said, uh, yeah, sure. Sure enough, this guy phones two weeks later from Vanity Fair. He interviews me. The Vanity Fair issue came out a couple months later, and it's it quoted me and called me uh, – Archie Comics expert Cliff Nesteroff, who runs a witty pop culture blog, dot, dot, dot. MySpace.com yeah, slash MySpace, Cliff MySpace, MySpace.com <laughs> slash Nesteroff. So I was, uh, I was kind of intrigued. I was like, holy shit, I guess you never know who's reading your stuff on the internet. So then I thought, well, maybe that's a nice avenue if I put some strong effort into things and have a new, unique point of view. So uh, Ken Friedman at WFMU was running the WFMU Beware of the Blog. They would always post weird uh, LPs, like bizarre, offbeat things. Um, and I would, if I was still collecting records, so I'd occasionally find something weird in a record store. Like I had this record by this guy. Uh, photo on the cover is a guy with uh, no arms and no legs, just a torso with a guitar in his lap, and it was a Christian 
record. You were were you familiar with WFMU when they kind of got in touch? Uh, yeah, yeah, vaguely. For, for people listening, it's a it's a station out of Jersey City, Jersey City, right? Yeah, yeah. it's a a freeform station, a station in in sort of the college college radio station well, mold, New, but way York, better. The New York Times described it as like a a secret handshake among the the hip set. Yeah, and it's had famous uh, fans for years, from Lou Reed and Kurt Cobain to Conan O'Brien and Quentin Tarantino. They've always uh, uh, pushed. Uh, and, and, and endorse what WFMU does, which is very unique and offbeat and weird. So I would Google like the guy with no limbs, and the only hit that would come up would be somebody on WFMU's blog talking about this guy with no limbs who put out this guitar record. Yeah. You know? And that happened multiple times where I would Google, and the only info was WFMU, and I thought, man, they're kind of on my wavelength. And then I was reading their stuff, and I was like, well, I wonder how you get to write for this website and it always had lots of comments below it like the people followed this website there'd be like 30 comments below saying yeah I used to own that record with the guy with no arms and legs you know so I emailed Ken Friedman and I said uh, do you guys take contributors if so uh, how does it work and I sent him a link to that Archie Comics thing he goes oh we, I love that piece yeah if you want to write about comic books or something like that yeah we'd be interested so the first thing I wrote for them was about comic books and that was the last time I ever wrote about comic books <laughs> But the first thing I wrote about was uh, uh, about Eric Estrada. Uh, his first two movies, long before Chips, were both Christian action movies. One that's slightly famous, co-stars Pat Boone, called The Cross and the Switchblade. There seems to be something of a theme with you, which is uh, Christian takes on the disparate genres. Yeah, I always found that fascinating. Christian ventriloquism was a big craze in the 50s and 60s. You always find records of uh, uh, some weird person on the cover with a ventriloquist dummy, and then it's just like teaching the Bible, like hundreds of those done by all kinds of different people. And I always found that kind of fascinating. The Christian entry into mainstream pop culture is just weird to me, whether it's Jack Chick comics or Christian punk rock. You know, there's always something that doesn't quite connect there. They're trying desperately to be cool. When you started thinking about writing for WFMU, when did you start doing like, I'm going to take this old comedian and, and unearth his story and put it up? The first time it happened, again, it was like a sign. You know, the fact that this guy from Vanity Fair interviewed me immediately after the first thing I ever wrote for the Internet was a sign. Like I was headed in the right direction. Take care of uh, what you're doing. Put some effort in. You don't know who's going to see it. So with the comedy thing, I had this record called... You Can't Beat People Up and Have Them Say I Love You by a very obscure comedian named Murray Roman. It was from the late 60s. The cover was kaleidoscopic. It was five pictures of the same guy's face. He was wearing tinted sunglasses. Is this like an anti-domestic violence routine? No, anti-police brutality. And all the tracks were very 60s. There was a track about smoking bananas, a track about police brutality, and he would use... He sort of sounded like a guy doing a Lenny Bruce impression. You know, I, I only remember one line, and it's not even the joke. I just remember half of a sentence where he was talking about smoking bananas, and he said, yeah, we'll get a groovy guy. And for that's all I remember. But for some reason, I remember that cadence. Yeah, we'll get a groovy guy. And then he would hit the punchlines, and then there would be reverb on the punchline, and then music would come in, and then it would fade out and go back into the next bit. And the liner notes were by Tommy Smothers of the Smothers Brothers. So I think I was still doing stand-up at the time, 
And I had the chance to meet the Smothers Brothers that came through Vancouver, and I was talking to them backstage. And I said to Tommy Smothers, you know, I have this record by this guy, Murray Roman. You did the liner notes for it. He goes, oh, Murray, I haven't heard that name in a long time. And I was like, well, who is he? He said, well, he was a writer on the Smothers Brothers show. He'd been a stand-up comedian, but he died very young. He got into a car accident around 1971, around the same time that he was the opening act for The Who. And I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting story. So a couple months later, I decided to write about it for WFMU. And I phoned Tommy Smothers. I said, do you remember we met, blah, blah, blah. So we did this interview. And halfway through the interview, he said, you know, you know who would know more about this than me? I said, who? He said, Steve. And I said, Steve? He said, yeah, Steve Martin. And I said, oh. He said, yeah, have you talked to Steve yet? And I said, I must have lost his number, Tommy. I don't know. He goes, well, listen, I'll, I'll call him. I'll tell him to call you. An hour later, my phone rings at my apartment in Vancouver, the apartment full of records, I'm sitting in my underwear, and it's Steve Martin on the phone. And he goes, yeah, Tommy told me to call you. I said, yeah, I'm writing about Murray Rome. And he goes, yeah, we were writers, writing partners in the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour uh, writer's room. So I talked to him on the phone for like half hour, 40 minutes, and then at the end of the conversation, he goes, so who else are you uh, writing about? I'm interested in a lot of those old guys. You ever get into Jackie Vernon? Jackie Vernon was like a Dean Martin regular in the 60s, kind of obscure, but funny. And so we're talking about Jackie Vernon. Steve Martin and I are nerding out. I'm 26 years old in my apartment in Vancouver. And so I took uh, that, and I interviewed a couple of the other guys they set me up with, Bob Einstein and Mason Williams, who were both writers um, on the Smothers Brothers show, New Murray Roman. I wrote this piece about Murray Roman. It wasn't very good. I wasn't a good writer at all. Um, but I put it together for WFMU, wrote the article, and then I posted the the full transcripts of those four conversations because Steve Martin and I are talking about Jackie Vernon. I thought it was kind of interesting. And sure enough, people responded to them and, and left all these comments and, you know, very complimentary. But again, it was like a sign. It was like, wow, I just, Steve Martin just phoned me. I'm yeah. 26 years old. So I was like, maybe this is a thing. And nobody else had ever written about Murray Roman. Yeah. So I was like, you know, then really there's stories here that I can unearth. And nobody's going to find my writing by Googling my name because I'm nobody. But maybe somebody will find my article about Murray Roman because they find maybe that record. Maybe if I SEO some classic comedians, I'll eventually get the search traffic. Uh, it's it's a weird thing. Like the fact that the guy from Vanity Fair calls after yeah. two weeks and then the next thing I write, Steve Martin calls it's just it's a it's a z-lig type thing so I, I i just felt like it was uh the right direction because of that and lo and behold it is the right direction yep. because all the years i did stand up was fine but that never brought me into the uh the presence of albert brooks or mel brooks or steve martin or bob odenkirk but doing what i'm doing now uh has you know so i, I gotta say I, I, it was an accident but it worked out so uh the book is the comedians yes uh drunks thieves scoundrels and the history of american comedy yes and the book in some ways takes these individual stories that you've had on wfmu and weaves it into a larger constellation yeah. where you uh, the main thing that really clicked for me was there are these patterns within it um you know there's this mob period and this is the kind of shit you dealt with with the mob and, and working working flea bag hotels like you start to see that these lives are not totally unique that people were in some ways riding various uh cultural waves um and and it feels like when you read the entire book that comedy really reinvents itself every 10 to 20 years you know the guys who are on top end right. up on the bottom right. you know i was the you know vaudeville gets wiped out by radio gets wiped out by tv and 
it's not a particularly a happy transition for most of the people earning a living in it. Well, the changing tides of America are not usually happy. Like right now, there is a controversy about political uh, correctness and comedy. And Jerry Seinfeld uh, recently complained that he can't play to a college-age audience because they're too sensitive. But that's probably the changing tides of America being resisted by a man who's now 60 years old because a college-age audience is 18, 19, 20. And this controversy started because Jerry Seinfeld did a joke in which he did like a gay lisp and a gay stereotype uh, gesture. And apparently the audience had an aversion to it and didn't give him the laugh that he had anticipated. But he's performing to a group of kids that were not around when that was acceptable. These are people that are being raised in an era where there's no tolerance for uh, not just homophobia, but even like uh, certain words or stereotypes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just a shift in the culture because certain things that were not uh, acceptable before are acceptable now. And other things that were acceptable before are now unacceptable. And that's how America changes. The same thing happened in the 50s and 60s as segregation uh, was destroyed. This old axiom was that we had to be separate but equal was also destroyed. And suddenly, eventually, the mainstream uh, uh, adopted that idea, where previously that had been like an underground idea. So I feel like the same thing happens every 15, 20 years, and those who are not willing to go along with those changes and resist them are the ones who are in for that unhappy time. And some of those, and some of those changes aren't just someone like Seinfeld um, not getting the laugh, or, or you know, someone protesting his appearance on the campus as a result. But also, you see in the book. There's this whole period where um, a large part of comedy is just getting up and doing an ethnic stereo. There's like the Jew guy, the Italian guy, and the German guy. And not only does that become offensive at a certain point, but it becomes stale. So people are like, oh, God, that fucking, you know, that guy who goes on and does that um, Italian act. Yes. Well, comedy always becomes stale, whether it's offensive or not offensive. It has an expiry date, unfortunately. A lot of people don't want to... Uh, uh, hear this because that means that a lot of their favorite comedians suddenly become uh, irrelevant. But that's the history of comedy. The hippest, coolest guy today, whoever that is to you in comedy, 50 years from now, the new generation is going to say, that guy's not funny and he's square. And they're going to say, this new young guy is funny. But then in another 50 years, that guy becomes the square who isn't funny. And it's not that they weren't funny and everybody was wrong. It was that that person was relating to their time. So Jack Benny, like I was saying, is funny to the grandpa, but not to the grandkid. And you'll never convince that grandkid that Jack Benny is funny. And the grandkid will never convince the grandpa that Bo Burnham is funny because they're relating to the person of their time. Obviously, there's huge exceptions here and there. But generally speaking, overall... That is the case in every single era of comedy. It happens again and again and again. Lenny Bruce is known as this great genius. It's very hard to convince young people of that if they're just listening to his records. There's no uh, uh, relation to the material or the style that he is doing that was groundbreaking. And in the case of Lenny Bruce, even the material that does exist, as you discuss in the book, is not representative of his full career like the the you when you listen to a Lenny Bruce record you listen to him at the very end for the most part he was not allowed to do what he did on a record because it had to be sold commercially and he was very much free form he wasn't set up punchline and in those records you have to have a routine that fits in a four minute track right 
And likewise, the stuff about religion and uh, dealing with language is very seldom on those records because they couldn't take the risk of pressing that and having the records confiscated or busted for obscenity the same way he was on stage. Those records would have been uh, busted. Uh, The people that sold the records could get busted for obscenity. So there was a lot of trepidation of allowing Lenny Bruce to be Lenny Bruce on vinyl records. So we don't actually have the proper representation of his act. The only film of him is right at the very end when he's talking about legal stuff, you know. Um, So we just don't have that. All we have is the say-so of others. But we do know this much. Lenny Bruce uh, infinitely influenced George Carlin and completely influenced Richard Pryor. And we do have footage and audio of Richard Pryor and George Carlin, and they're often considered the two greatest stand-up comedians of all time. 50 years from now, there'll be a new generation who does not include them in that list. But they were completely influenced by Lenny Bruce. And today, Richard Pryor and George Carlin are two of the most influential people for people who are now the stars of comedy. So that alone means Lenny Bruce was important. Whether or not the material is recorded or whether it holds up is ultimately irrelevant because the influence is so important. So you do a really great job, I think, in the book of bringing to life these different periods in comedy and how exciting and fun it was to see them as a firsthand audience person. What you know, what it would be like to sit in one of these mafia era right. Vegas clubs, right. and you know, and that's part of it. It's not uh, what's happening on the stage isn't the entire s- story of comedy. It's not just what jokes got told. It's right. the whole atmosphere right. 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 and the whole the whole kinds of the show, but. It struck me that when you were writing this book, there's very little footage that exists of most of the periods. I mean, this book goes from um, about, what, 1910 to about 2000, say? Yeah. And up until the 60s, there's almost nothing uh, available in terms of being able to see a lot of these routines. Yeah, it's interesting. Nobody really thought to film uh, the nightclub acts. I don't know why. Um, There is film footage of Martin and Lewis's uh, nightclub act at the Copacabana, a full hour from like 53 or 54. It is remarkable to watch because you suddenly see why Jerry Lewis became the biggest thing in comedy. Right. You see him interacting with the nightclub crowd. You see the effect they had on that cloud that is on that crowd that's going uh, hysterical over their shtick. Um, but you're right. For the most part, that doesn't exist. Although, who's to say that any of it would hold up for us? But, I mean, you're right. There's no r- r- real record. And interestingly enough, comedy records, the audio of these people's acts, did not exist till 1956 when right. Red Fox became the first person to put out a comedy record. And then 58, Mort Saul, 59, Shelley Berman. And then after that, the floodgates were open for this huge comedy uh, LP boom that happened right. in the 60s. So basically the first half of that hit, you know, the first half of the 20th century is undocumented in terms of firsthand documents. Yes, more of- or less. And I, I relied heavily on a Variety that was published six days a week, every week for yeah. nearly a hundred years. So a lot of the only record we have of uh, lost television shows from the early days or, or forgotten comedians and performances, all the record we have are these reviews that were written in newspapers and trade publications. And that's one of the reasons I find those fascinating. They're, that part's really fun to research because it's like walking into this foreign world and really getting a taste exactly what was happening to the day on one page. You'll have six different columns about six different events that all happened in the same week. And that's kind of uh, nerdily uh, exciting for me. But you're right. When it comes to film footage, when it comes to audio, 
uh, there was very little of it because it wasn't thought to be commercially viable to even bother. Nobody was going to buy or go to a movie theater and watch a film of, of somebody doing their nightclub act. You could go to a nightclub and see that. Yeah, so they didn't think to film it really. And without the profit motive, nobody bothered. And we don't nowadays film plays and project. I mean, there is, you know, there's always that thing, you know, which is that that something that was great in person would be a total right. letdown. So in some ways, it's a blessing not to be able to see some of these things because you can immerse yourself imaginatively sure. in the eyes of the audience. But I'm guessing in terms of your research that that was difficult, that when you're talking about uh, a comic in the 30s routine well, and you can't actually... See I, it. I, I didn't find it difficult because if you go through the book, you'll see that I don't really describe that many acts. I describe their lives. I describe their experience. Very seldom do I quote the material because even that gets lost in translation. Sure. If you took Louis C.K.'s act and transcribed it, it's going to lose almost everything on the page. Which is something you see in controversies on Twitter around uh, comedy acts now where someone will quote a line from a comedy act and it's like, well, it sounds very different in, in the set. Right. Or it's like the water cooler thing where a guy tries to relay the hilarious joke he heard right. a comedian tell and then everybody stands there with a stone face because the guy doesn't know how to deliver it. He just butchers it. You yeah. Know? So there's always something lost in the translation there. So in my... Uh, descriptions of these people's acts, I sometimes talk about their style. I talk about who they influenced, why they were important, maybe a personal tragedy or a personal struggle that happened in their life or a personal triumph. But overall, I don't really uh, get into describing the details of their act because I feel if you do, you're going to lose the audience a bit because they'll read it and find it's not funny and then they'll think, well, this guy's not important. He's not even funny. So I don't even attempt. There's not one person in there that is described as funny. <laughs> There's not one person in there that's described as unfunny. I don't go there. So this whole world that you've immersed yourself in, um, com classic comedy, but also comedy up to the present day, 10,000 LPs. Uh, I don't know how many stories you've written for uh, for WFMU, but you've now written an entire book about it. Where does this obsessive nature come from in you? I mean, what drives you after you've gotten that 10th profile of someone from this era to pursue the 11th and to keep going well, for it? Well, it's, it's just all about stories, good stories, you know? And if it's a story that hasn't been told, then I want to tell it. You know, there was a, a article I wrote not related to comedy for WFMU in 2010, and it was called Destination Subconscious, Cary Grant and LSD. One of, one of my favorite pieces oh, of yours. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, in the 1950s, for those that don't know, uh, Cary Grant was the first celebrity to indulge in LSD psychotherapy with a psychiatrist to use it to get through various uh, stigmas and hangups. And when I was a teenager, I read this paperback I bought at a thrift store about Cary Grant. And they're talking about his career in the middle of the book. And they say, blah, blah, blah. He did this movie uh, with Sophia Loren. And then he went and saw a psychiatrist and did uh, 30 milligrams of LSD. The next movie, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> There's just one sentence that he did 30 micrograms of LSD in 1950, whatever. And I was like... That's a story there that's way more interesting than whatever is going to follow about Sophia Loren. And I would looked up other stuff on Cary Grant in indexes, and seldom was there ever a mention. So anywhere there's a story that 
is compelling that hasn't been told, that's the story I want to tell. And that's what drives me. And so this tapestry of comedians, it's kind of a lost era that I've documented, especially the 1940s. There's more on the 50s. There's lots on Lenny Bruce. But that era right before Lenny Bruce, where everything's controlled by the mafia, Uh, remarkably is undocumented. Uh, A little bit of that era is documented in terms of the singers like Frank Sinatra. People talk about his mob connections. Yeah. But people don't talk about everybody else's mob connections because everybody who was a singer or comedian then had mob connections because they owned the nightclubs where they performed. So everybody thinks Frank Sinatra had mob connections because he was a wannabe mobster. The reality is it's because they were his employers at most venues at the start of his career. So it was the same with all of these guys. And as we know in... American popular culture, there's always a fascination with mob stories, whether it's Jimmy Cagney, Edward G. Robinson in the 30s, The Untouchables in the 50s, Mario Puzo in the late 60s, Martin Scorsese in the 70s and 80s, The Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire to today. There's always a fascination with it. So I thought, well, comedians and the mafia, well, that's a new angle, especially when these are guys whose, whose whole vocation is ridicule. If you make fun of the wrong guy, if you accidentally make fun of the mobster's wife, you're in uh, in peril. There might yeah. be some danger. There might be some violence. And I find that kind of interesting and intriguing. And sure enough, when I would interview guys who were in their 80s or 90 years old, and they would talk about those days, uh, it was frequently fascinating to me because they did have brush-ins where they almost got hurt or somebody they knew did get hurt, beaten up, stabbed in the face with a fork. All these crazy stories. I liked, uh, uh, I think Joey Lewis was the guy who was beaten almost to death by the mob but then becomes a, a favorite of the mob because he didn't snitch on them. At he did, for- yeah, he didn't He didn't talk, uh, literally and figuratively. He had his throat slit by the mafia Uh, because he had defied them. They had booked him at a place called the Green Mill in Chicago, uh, which was run by Capone's people, and he got sick of playing there. He was a novice comedian at the time, so he went and performed somewhere else. He was naive. He didn't realize you can't do that. And so he went and performed at this other place, and they said, no, 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 you don't make those decisions. We make those decisions. And he said, well, go fuck yourself. I don't, I don't, you don't owe me. And basically they said, yeah, we, we do, and so they slit his throat. And the only reason he didn't die is because blood was pouring out from under the door of his rooming house and somebody saw the puddle flowing down the hallway and, and, and saved him in time. He was stitched up, but he lost the ability to talk for a long time. It took about three or four years till he regained the ability to speak and then started doing stand-up again. And because he did not squeal on the people that did that to him, and because he managed to survive, he had the respect of the mob for the rest of his life, and he became a headliner at all the major important mob-connected nightclubs from Ciro's in Los Angeles to the Copacabana in uh, New York to Miami Beach to uh, El Rancho in Las Vegas. All these places, Joey Lewis became like the headliner. He always played a big New Year's Eve show at one of those venues and made a lot of money, and it was because the mob took care of him for the rest of his life. When you're tracking down these stories, and, and I think the the bulk of the interviews you did for this book are people who are over the age of 75, sure. some of them over the age of 90, yeah. um, you're really in a race against the clock um, to document this stuff. Is that something that you think about while you're conducting these interviews, that I am rescuing a history that would otherwise go away? And, and are you thinking about, wow, this is I have to do this right now, or some of these people are not going to be around? Not really, but you know, somebody gave me Carl Reiner's uh, home phone number 
a while back. And uh, I don't like phoning people at home. I like to have a conduit where it's like a friend of a friend. You should talk to Cliff. You know, I don't want to just cold call somebody. Right. And, e- and this is not really an emailable generation. Yeah, that's right. You can't email these guys. They very seldom are, are using the computer. Maybe I could tweet at Carl Reiner. <laughs> I don't know. But I, uh, so I, I was resistant. And I said to a friend, I don't want to disturb Carl Reiner at home, you know. And they said, Cliff, if you don't phone that number, he's going to die and you're going to regret it. And I said, you know what? You're right. So I cold called Carl uh, Reiner at home. I said, Mr. Reiner, I'm, my name is Cliff Nesteroff. I'm writing this book. I'm doing this thing, blah, blah, blah. I want to talk to you about Billy Gray's band box and maybe some interesting things that people don't ask you about. How did you get this number? <laughs> oh, I just, uh, I, I'm very busy right now. I'm very busy. How did you get that? No, no, no. And he hung up on me and I was like, <laughs> it was exactly what I feared. It yeah. could not have gotten worse, <laughs> you know? But then again, I still would have felt bad had I not done that. So uh, I don't really look at it as a race against uh, time. I mean, that's a good point. Maybe maybe I should. But the thing is, a lot of guys, as they get old, even if they're alive, you've already lost. Uh, I interviewed the professor, Erwin Corey, uh, at the age of 101. He's still alive at, at the date of this uh, recording. And it was a bit of a struggle. I transcribed it, and it reads really well. But what you don't know is that there was a third person on the phone repeating everything that I said to him, yelling into the receiver. Erwin Corey was wearing a headset of headphones that amplified the sound, and and there was like a real uh, struggle there. Then when you read it, it looks like it's just this great is, conversation. Is it Erwin Corey who Thomas Pynchon sent to accept his award? Yes, yeah, that is who that is. Yeah. So he was already. Uh, yes. So he must have already been. He was 60 already or in 70 his 70s at that then. point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's 101. I also did an interview with this guy Will Jordan, who's hard of hearing. He loves to talk though, and he's a great resource of old stories and connections. He used to do amateur nights with Lenny Bruce, and he's still alive. And uh, I asked him. Milton Berle notoriously had the largest cock in show business, and everybody made jokes about Milton Berle's big dick. Uh, it's a weird thing to make a joke about because usually people make jokes about somebody's small dick. Yeah. And here the, the punchline is about his big dick, which you think would be a good thing. But anyways, uh, so I wanted to ask Will Jordan about the legend of Milton Berle's cock because... You wanted to find someone who had actually seen Milton yeah. Berle's cock? Well, I've met people who've seen his cock, but I wanted to know where that legend started. Why did it become a thing that caught fire that everybody joked about at the Friars Club roasts? What is the genesis of the Milton Berle dick lore, yeah. you know? So I said to Will Jordan on the phone, who's hard of hearing, I said, what can you tell me about uh, Burl's schlong? And he goes, oh, he was a great comedian. The thing about Dick Sean. I said, no, 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 Burl's, <laughs> Burl's schlong. He goes, yes, in, he was great in the producers, Dick Sean. No, <laughs> Burl's schlong, you know. So sometimes you have that uh, difficulty. So they're alive and well, but at the same time, I'm getting there in time, it's still a bit of a struggle. And sometimes memory is a problem. Sometimes their stories change. Sometimes they transpose somebody else's story and say that they're the one that is the center of the story. Um, but lo and behold, if you if you talk to enough people, you can create this great deep tapestry, which I'm proud to say that I've I've been able to do. And uh, last question: uh, Are you done with this project, or does this just stretch into infinity? I mean, 
if every page of variety and if you scroll up the microfiche there's another story lurking there right. is it, it it's hard for me to tell how big this well is. It's an incredibly dense book. I mean, you're learning about dozens and dozens of comedians in the book. Have you documented 90% of it? Have you documented 10% of it? I mean... Well, it's impossible to say because so many of those stories that are documented in there are discovered by accident. Yes. So just when you think there's nothing left to explore, something else comes along. I'll give you a quick example. Something I wrote recently after I finished the book that's about show business, but not about comedians. In the early 60s, there was this guy named Keefe Brazel, K-E-E-F-E, who had been a song and dance man in mob run nightclubs, not very talented, kind of had a grating voice. And in the late 40s, they made a couple successful movies at Columbia about Al Jolson called The Jolson Story and Jolson Sings Again. Warner Brothers wanted to cash in because those biopics were very successful. So they made this movie called The Eddie Cantor Story, and they hired this guy, Keefe Brazel, to play uh, Eddie Cantor. Uh, So they thought it was going to be a huge success. All the publicity said, a great new discovery. Warner Brothers' greatest new discovery. Keith Brazell stars in the Eddie Cantor story. And Keith Brazell started to believe his own hype. He was a great new discovery, a great new star. Well, the movie comes out and it bombs. But he had the ego of somebody who had become a big star now. And he held on to that. But he continued to play saloons, these mob-connected things. Uh, while he was living in Los Angeles, he became friendly with this guy at KNX, CBS Los Angeles, named Jim Aubrey, who was a program director there. By the end of the 1950s, Jim Aubrey became head of programming for CBS, the network. Now, Jim Aubrey was known as a womanizer. He was also known as getting rough with women. He was at a Hollywood party. He got into an argument with a woman at the top of a staircase. He pushed her or threw her down the stairs. She broke her arm. Turns out the woman was a mobster's mole. Some people say a mobster's daughter. At any rate, uh, he could, the ire ire of the mob was raised and they were going to kill Jim Aubrey, the head of CBS programming. Well, now he was beside himself and he calls his friend Keith Brazell who's mob connected and Keith had gotten wind of the story and he worked on it and he managed to get the hit called off and save Jim Aubrey's life. Now this untalented guy, Keith Brazell said, you know, I kind of feel like you owe me a favor or two because I saved your life. He said, sure, anything, anything, because I want my own television series on CBS primetime. And uh, Jim Aubrey said, well, I think we could do that. He goes, no, scratch that. I want three. I want three television series on the fall primetime lineup. So in the 64-65 season on CBS, three television series premiered in primetime that never had a pilot from this brand new production company called Richelieu Productions, which was Keith Brazell's company he just manufactured. That, is that after, named after Cardinal Richelieu? I don't know. It was, it was named after a uh, bar the two of them used to drink at together, actually. And they put out these three series that nobody remembers, one called The Baileys of Balboa. The other one was called The Carol Williams Show. The other was a drama called The Reporter. And they all went on the air. They all got terrible reviews. And it became a scandal within CBS. The shareholder said, how did these three series... Uh, get on the air without anybody, any of us being consulted. And they, they lost hundreds of thousands of dollars for CBS because they were expensive con- uh, productions and they plummeted in the ratings. And Jim Aubrey was being asked to explain what happened. Um, but he couldn't explain what happened. He could not tell. So it was really a weird thing. Then I learned later that uh, Keith Brazell took some of the money 
that he got from that venture. He opened his own nightclub. It was burned to the ground by a rival uh, mob faction. Uh, he got very jealous of his ex-wife's new husband, a sitcom writer, so he went after him and shot him with a gun, and Keith Brazell eventually became an alcoholic. I found this story again by accident. It has nothing to do with comedy. Obviously, it's connected to uh, old-time showbiz. But again, just a story that hasn't been told. So what's next is not necessarily about comedians, but I'll go wherever the stories that are great that haven't been told are, and I'll tell them. And what did you find out about Milton Berle's cock? Alan's Y. Bells described it as a fucking anaconda. Cliff Nesteroff, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks, Aaron. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Cliff Nesteroff. I emailed him about a year and a half ago, and he sent me a one-sentence email that was like, I'm working on the book. We'll, we'll contact you when done. And he did, and he came on the show. That's how it's done. Thanks, Max Linsky. Thanks, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks, Molly Bain. Thanks to our great sponsors, Casper, Squarespace, Creative Live, and, of course, MailChimp. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.